Welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, I'm sorry for any confusion that might have resulted uh, yesterday in the posting of my Sensibly Speaking podcast. I actually wholly reshot it and reposted it because I had a fairly significant pronunciation error that a couple of people pointed out. And the reason I wanted to reshoot it is because I, I didn't want that to detract from the message of what I was trying to get across. And if people were going to get all hung up on that, then they were going to miss the much, much, much bigger point I was trying to make. And I didn't want that now or into the future. So I just, I just did that. So anyway, like I said, sorry for any confusion about that. But I think I got a better product uh, as a result, uh, both sound-wise and uh, pronunciation-wise. All right. You guys know how I butcher names. Well, those aren't all the only, the only things I butcher. Um, okay. So uh, let's go ahead and get on to your questions now because I think we want to uh, get straight away onto that. And we got some really big, good ones this week. Maureen Redfern. When I was a kid, there was a story in a major magazine that talked about how our skin was covered with little bacteria. I remember my mom and dad talking about the fact that there was no way to scrub these bacteria off, and they were freaking out. Of course, since then, science has realized that these bacteria actually help us. Companies are beginning to realize the importance of this microbiome and are selling products that protect these bacteria, but at the same time this first came out, we were all very uncomfortable with the whole idea. Jumping ahead to Scientology and body thetans, I've watched a ton of critics and only heard this touched on briefly. Some Scientologists, after being told they're covered with little disembodied entities that they can't break free of, lose it. I could see how this might send somebody straight off a cliff, since it's so similar to the microbiome thing. From what I gather, Lisa McPherson may have even had this problem. I'm not a psychiatrist, but if somebody gets out of their car, gets completely naked, and walks around on the street in traffic, it would make sense that they were trying to get rid of something that's attached all over their body. So how do Scientologists accept this without losing their freaking minds? Do most Scientologists, when they're told this, just go, oh, okay, cool. I know that auditing is supposed to remove these body thetans, but from what I understand, it's a painfully slow process. Why isn't the freakout so much more extreme? Also, does anyone imagine they could sense these beings on them, moving around or crawling like bugs? Or did everybody understand that they were quiet and kept to themselves? Thanks for the question, Maureen. And I think you're referring here with this whole creepy crawly thing to like entomophobia, uh, which is, you know, not exactly the same thing as insectophobia. It's I think it's more of a general fear of like any kind of bugs or moving things or something. So that's kind of the closest thing I could find in the English language to what you were kind of referring to there. And I could completely understand why people would freak out initially about the whole, you know, bacteria thing or the little creepy crawly things. Uh, it's kind of like finding out, you know, that you got little creepy crawlies all over your bed and, the, you know, and your clothes. I mean, they're just, they're just everywhere, right? But then you find out, actually, that they've always been there and they're completely necessary for our survival. They're not just there leeching off of us. Now, as far as Scientology goes, though, no, I've never heard anybody uh, ever, ever, ever say anything about feeling that way once they learned about the body thetans. Uh, I didn't have that experience myself, of course, because I didn't get to the OT levels when I was in Scientology. But after I found out about what it was all about and read it, 
I, that wasn't what occurred to me either. I mean, that happened within, you know, a couple months of being out of the Sea Org. So I was still very much in the Scientology mindset when I learned about what the OT levels cover. And uh, I was not a happy camper when I found that out. So let me go over a couple of reasons here why uh, they might not have that uh, sort of, you know, not crawling all over me, my body kind of reaction to that um, because it's kind of interesting. So um, thetans, which include body thetans, these things that you're talking about, um, are, are immaterial. They are, they are not physical. They don't exist in the physical universe as such. There isn't anything crawling all over your body because a thetan doesn't exist that way in the physical universe. It has no position or location in space or time. It has no wavelength, no mass. It just is an awareness of awareness unit is what Hubbard calls it. And if you're immediately thinking, well, then how does it compose your body? Well, you've asked the exact contradiction. You've hit on the exact contradiction that I make a point about all the time with this, is how do you have a spiritual entity that has no tangible form or location even? You can't even go, there he is, or there he is, because that's not how it works, right? They're everywhere and nowhere at the same time, kind of familiar, right? Um, so there's this basic contradiction that a thetan is stuck in a body, stuck in the material universe, stuck on this planet. Like, why? <laughs> you know, I, I understand one way of explaining it, actually, in Scientology terms, which I won't go into here a whole lot other than to say that there's probably some kind of understanding that the thetan is located where he's aware of being located, and so that's his location. But, okay... Fine, but how do you have mass and why are you affected by? I mean, there's all kinds of other questions that come out from this. But anyway, there is this basic contradiction. How do you how does how does a formless, you know, shapeless, immaterial thing make up a body? Doesn't really make any sense at all, and that's pretty much the only way I've been able to reconcile it with myself is I just go, oh, that just doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know. Um, and no one, you know, every time I've brought up this whole thing about the contradiction, no Scientologist or even independent Scientologist has ever bothered to take this on or, or address my, my point here. I, don't, I think it's because they don't get it either. You know, it's just sort of this thing that you sort of just kind of take on faith. Um, there's another reason I was thinking also that Scientologists might not be so freaked out about it. And I thought you might find this interesting because this comes out of some of the more recent stuff I've been studying. Um, you know, there's a kinship in, in evolutionary biology and biology in general, right? Different species um, don't relate to each other the same way that they relate in group, in species, right? Uh, and there is this, um, this kinship that exists. So if Scientologists... Uh, all think of themselves as thetans, which they do, right? That, that it's a core, core belief. I mean, it's the most essential core belief of Scientology is, and it is a belief. They think it's, you know, they've got some kind of objective proof of it, but they don't. They're just misinterpreting the, the indications and, and physical things that happen to them and their subjective experiences as tangible, actual proof. None of that stuff is any proof of anything. 
but Scientologists have, it's, it's crossed their threshold of believability, right? So they've accepted fully this idea that they are an immortal spiritual being, that their body is just something they own. It's just a sliver in their thumb. It's nothing. Their body is, bodies are dime a dozen. You know, they're all, they're all over the place and, and there's, there's billions of them and you've had billions of them in the past, you know, in your previous lives. So bodies are no big deal. You are the spiritual entity. You know, you are, I am, okay. So once you've accepted that as who you really are, then when you find out about body thetans, you don't look at them as bugs or as some other species. You see, there's a kinship, right? There's automatic affinity. There is this automatic feeling that you are with them, that you, that you should help them, that you should assist them out of that condition, in the same way that if you were to walk into a disaster zone and there were people laying on the ground and, you know, like you'd immediately start triaging and trying to figure out who, what you should do to help all these people. I, at least I hope you would, right? So that's kind of how they feel about these newfound body thetans that they found out about. Um, so it's not the same thing as, as bugs at all. They don't just, they just don't even, it doesn't even occur to them to think that way about it. Um, the other thing is that they want to help these little body thetans out. I, I call them little body thetans. I guess, you know, whatever. There's, there's no size to it. But they want to help them out because these body thetans have been very closely aligned with this, this you, the thetan, for a very long time. And they've been so patched up with you and you've been so unaware of the fact that they are even there or that they exist that you think their thoughts are your thoughts. And these guys are, these body thetans are kind of out of it most of the time. They're not active, running your body. They don't take you over. It doesn't work like that. They're very much stuck there, and there's not a whole lot they can do about it. And most of the time, they're asleep or unconscious, is how, is how I understand it, or, you know, just immobile for whatever reason. But if they do come around for some reason... They, you know, you can start confusing your ideas and your thoughts with what they're thinking because you're kind of linked telepathically, according to Hubbard, right? Of course you are. So, um, so they, you know, so by freeing these guys, by addressing them telepathically in auditing sessions and getting them freed up, you're assisting them. You're actually boosting them spiritually and you're helping them out. And you're also helping yourself out because now you're becoming more and more who you are are without all these invisible accoutrements that you didn't even know about. So if anything, I think people might even be somewhat eager to get into session and start addressing these things and getting to it. And I don't think they feel eked out about it at all. Um, okay, now as far as um, Lisa McPherson goes, I just wanted to comment on this because this is kind of important. Um, Lisa McPherson did not get to the level where you learn about body thetans. She didn't get to OT3. She went clear. Uh, David Miscavige cleared her <laughs> to go clear uh, personally, right? He looked in her folder and stuff for whatever reason he did. And um, that's just part of the story. And then she had a psychotic episode, uh, I believe, while she was doing what's called OT preps. Now, I, I could be wrong about that, but it definitely, she had definitely not gotten through those st necessary steps to get on to the OT levels and learn about the body thickness. So that was not the cause of her episode. I would 
be more than happy to bet money if we could find out, which we can't at this point, but if we could find out for 1,000% sure that it was Scientology that caused that psychotic break, um, you know, I'd, I'd bet money on the, on the fact that that's probably what the, that there was something mixed up with that that caused her to go a bit loony. Uh, and then, you know, have her unfortunate and very, very tragic uh, end-of-life episode in the care of Sea Org members. Uh, anyway, yeah, the last place you want to get stuck. Um, and that's, that's kind of what happened to her. So anyway, I just wanted to give you that additional data for your uh, elucidation. <laughs> All right, thanks for the question, Maureen. Fred Flogiston, why don't Scientologists recognize David Miscavige as a squirrel? It's a good question, because from the outside, of course, we can certainly see that David Miscavige fits the definition of what a squirrel is, according to Scientology. So let's talk about that. Um, first off, there is something, there's a mindset, there's something I'd like to get across first about, this, about what Scientologists, how Scientologists view the world or, how, or what their perspective is on, on this particular thing. Um, you know, there's very specific things Scientologists have to start thinking with in order to be Scientologists. One of them is that you are a spiritual entity. You, you just really can't be a Scientologist for very long if you don't accept that as actual, literal truth. Um, and the other thing is that there's the concept, and it's a different one, that there's a single source for... Dianetics and Scientology, but also there's that spreads out to there is a single idea or single truth or single source of truth on any subject. You know, there's a way, there's a right way to do it, and then there's this infinity of wrong ways, and you really got to, you know, hone in on what's the one right way. And so that leads to this idea that there is a single source for things. It's kind of an interesting idea, right? I mean, you kind of think about that for a second. You go, huh? Because uh, I think in the real world, we're pretty tuned to the fact that, uh, yeah, sure, there might be an inventor or somebody who discovers something, but a whole bunch of people then get to work on it and expand it and 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 advance it and come up with new uh, revisions and new ideas from that. You know, so it's not really a single source for you know, physics or algebra or even calculus at this point, right? I mean, Newton might have invented it one summer, but, you know, people have added to it since then, right? So that's, you know, I mean, now again, I'm not a calculus expert, but I'm just kind of throwing that out there. So anyway, that, that idea doesn't really, it's not really the same thing. In Scientology, it's a very focused idea. Um, so there is also, so in Scientology, you have this idea of source, and with a capital S, that is one of the titles L. Ron Hubbard gave himself. He said, I am source. Not I'm the, he said, I'm the source of dynamics and Scientology. Uh, I'm the single source of it, according to keeping Scientology working. But he then said, I am source. Okay, that was a title that he had. Um, and that lasted until he died. And then David Miscavige took over. And to the mind of Scientologists, David Miscavige is now source. Now, let me explain this, because people might go, well, they still revere Hubbard. Yes, they do. But, right, there has to be this, you know, this he's the living, David Miscavige is now the living representation of source, you see. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what goes on internally in Scientology you might not have heard about. Um, 
I don't want to get into a big long explanation of this whole organizing board and stuff, but there is a seven division organizing board in every Scientology organization. That's how it's structured. And it, division seven is the executive division. It consists of three departments. One of those departments is the department of L. Ron Hubbard or the office of L. Ron Hubbard. It's headed up by a post, uh, a person called the L. Ron Hubbard or LRH communicator. So the, there's a, there's another title to that department. I don't want to get into what it's technically called. It's going to get a little confusing, but let me just say that every one of these departments not only has a name, but it has this additional thing, this additional name that's added to it that's called an awareness characteristic. And it, and it sort of Hubbard's idea of melding the, the, the bridge to total freedom with the organizing board. And he did it with these awareness characteristics. So the reason that this is that what I'm trying to get to here is that Department 21, the office of L. Ron Hubbard, has the awareness characteristic of source. Okay, that's what it's called. David Miscavige, internally within the C organization, is one of his titles is Department 21. That's what people call him when they're referring to him. They never call it to him to his face, but when they're talking about something coming from Department 21, there's only one guy that's referring to. That's referring to David Miscavige. And that was used many, 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 many times during my Scientology Sea Org career, not just a couple times. It was ubiquitous. We heard it all the time. So, um, so that's David Miscavige's identity in the Sea Org. He's source, man. So that um, is something that Scientologists think of when they think of David Miscavige. They think about him that way. So it would be inconceivable to think of him as a squirrel any more than it would be inconceivable to think of L. Ron Hubbard as a squirrel because they're source. Now, to drive this home even further, right, because a squirrel in Scientology, sorry, I never did get around to defining that, a squirrel in Scientology is somebody who alters or changes Scientology techniques and procedures in a, in a destructive way. And they, are, they get kicked out of the church or they leave the church and they take the technology and they use it, but they twist it and alter it and mess it up. And so they're called squirrels. Hubbard was death on these guys. He was just not, it, not down with them at all. That's why, he, that's why he called them squirrels. He said they're a little nutty and uh, just did everything he could to denigrate anybody taking his techniques or ideas and running with it and going off and doing something that he wasn't getting paid for. That's what it came down to is the Benjamins. So that was why Hubbard labeled these people that way. And that's why, again, it would be inconceivable that Hubbard or Miscavige would ever be thought of as a squirrel. Let me tell you about one other thing here uh, as to how this propaganda campaign is uh, engaged and reinforced. Within, again, within the world of Scientology. One, if you go to the David Miscavige website or the RTC website, you start looking at how they talk about David Miscavige for the many last many years, it has been that he is the successor of L. Ron Hubbard, handpicked by L. Ron Hubbard, I believe they say. Um, he was the successor, right? So he's the guy who's carrying on the tradition of Scientology. He is the spiritual leader of Scientology or the Scientology movement. That's how they couch this stuff, right? Is those are the words that they use now to describe David Miscavige. So this absolutely is, is reinforcing this mindset, you see. 
And one last thing you might not know about is sometimes when you see Miscavige in a full dress uniform, he's only got one little award wearing here. It's a little red one with a little star. Uh, that award is something only he and I think Norman Starkey have. And I don't know that Norman Starkey even, you know, is, is given the power to use it anymore. But uh, this is what I was told when I was in. I read about this award, though. It is in writing. It wasn't just some verbal rumor line. That award David Miscavige wears comes with a card that you carry in your wallet that says on it, the bearer of this card speaks for L. Ron Hubbard. Anything this person says is as good as L. Ron Hubbard himself saying it. Something along those lines. Definitely that idea. Um, I don't have the issue anymore, so I can't, you know, pull. I've never found it online, so I've never been able to pull it up and tell you exactly what it says. But basically, that was what it communicated. And when I learned about this, when I first got in the Sea Org, I was blown away that David Miscavige would, one, that this would exist, and two, that he would have it. But this was pointed out to me very early on, and I was, you know, duly impressed. And I always kind of held on to that piece of information because it seemed kind of important. This is, one of the, this is one of the reasons why, right? Is because you would never think of him as a squirrel. So that uh, is why Scientologists don't think about him that way. And thanks for the question. Francis Curry, has anyone ever gotten Scientology for free? The Scientology website, FAQ, assures the reader that one can be a Scientologist at no cost. What would really happen if someone showed up at an org and tried to take advantage of this? Okay, good question. Uh, okay, so first off, it, no, there, there is no such thing as free Scientology on any kind of long-term basis. Uh, let me tell you how it works. First off, you're always going to be paying for books and materials like lectures and e-meters and things like that. Always. They're, they're never giving that stuff away. Uh, also, too, there is a policy letter in Scientology that specifically states, thou shalt not ever give out free service. The name of the policy letter is free service, free fall. And it states in the policy letter that if you as a staff member go giving away free service to anybody, you're going to be billed the price, the cost of the service. So it is incumbent upon every staff member who is delivering services to the public to make sure that public comes to them with a signed invoice showing that they paid for the service. That is like big, big major policy in, in Scientology. Um, now, you can get cheaper services. You can do the basic level services, of course, but when it comes time to move up to the professional or real high-grade Scientology services, not just the street-level surface stuff, it's going to be cost you. Now, you can do co-auditing, and I've talked about that before, which is the cheapest way to go, but you still have to pay for the training classes. Those are hundreds of dollars each. You have to buy all the books and the lectures and the materials and the e-meter, right? You're going to have to buy all that stuff. This is thousands of dollars of investment now. The e-meter alone is four or $5,000, and you're supposed to have two of them. So you're paying out uh, you know, more than you're paying for a car in order to even do the training so that you can co-audit. And then you're doing your Scientology with another Scientologist who's also trained up the same level you are, and you can then audit each other. And you could do that for free. But remember my whole thing with Sonny Pereira about case supervision, you got to pay for the case supervision. So that's, you know, you're going to be paying by the hour for that to your org, right? So that's, so again, not free. 
The only policy letter I can think of off the top of my head that allows for any kind of free service in an organization is called the Free Scientology Center policy. And that policy letter covers students who are doing their training can bring in their friends and family for free auditing while they're doing their training or even while they're doing their internships. Usually when a, when a person is training, they just audit, practice a couple sessions of the style of auditing they learn, and they'll do that on anybody. They'll do it on a staff member. They'll pull in their little brother. They'll get a family member. They'll, you know, get another student. I mean, whoever they can do, right? And that's all covered under the Free Scientology Center because that person's not going to get charged for the student auditing. Normally, when the person goes on to an internship where they're doing nothing but auditing, 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 auditing in order to become perfect at it, they usually audit paid pre-clears in the Hubbard Guidance Center in the HTC. Uh, they're interns, but they're but they're you know getting uh, money for the org by uh, paying you know auditing paid PCs, pre-clears. Um, but if there aren't any paid pre-clears to audit, or there's nobody around, then that intern could audit somebody for free under that Free Scientology Center thing. So that's kind of how that works. It's supposed to be Free Scientology Center is supposed to be for charity cases, and you know Scientology and what they think about charity, but that's what it says in the policy, or it's supposed to be for you know the student PCs and stuff. Um, and that's you know that's kind of how it is. And let's just let's just keep in mind something here. The only reason. <laughs> Scientology organizations exist is to sell and deliver service materials and service to the public and get in public to sell and deliver too. And that is a pretty good paraphrase of an exact line of a policy letter called reason for orgs. So those orgs only exist to make money right out of L. Ron Hubbard's policies. So the idea that they're going to be given away any free services is just uh, completely opposite to their entire purpose. J. Cliff 85. I have spent my entire career in business, from engineering to sales to procurement. I know how difficult it is to specify and purchase material to keep a business running, from buying paper to specifying computer systems and buying or leasing automobiles. How in the world does Scientology manage this complex process when it seems to be so heavily bureaucratic, with so many levels of apparent approvals and authority? Who signs off on purchases and what are the dollar amounts that get additional scrutiny? Does Miscavige sign off on everything above a certain amount? For example, if a new printing press is needed or a maintenance contract is needed on an HVAC system, is there a dollar amount that triggers Miscavige approvals? Does he micromanage everything? Additionally, doesn't the constant threat of knowledge reports written up on each other stifle the Sea Org buyer's creativity and ability to develop new, but perhaps more cost-competitive but unproven vendors? Are all bids competitive, with a typical three-bid minimum required for compliance reasons? Does Scientology only buy from Scientology companies? Are they given preferential vendor status? How are commercial disputes settled? Are they as lawyer-happy with business deals as with SPs? Okay, dude, seriously, wow, man. Uh, okay, that's a lot there, and it would take me hours to actually fully answer your all those questions. Um, and it's kind of, it's kind of funny because I, I, I but I'm, I'm going to give you a good answer for this. Okay. We're definitely going to go over some stuff, but I just, I just realized when you were asking all this stuff that I was like, man, we critics really do a lot to simplify 
a very complicated picture. There's a lot going on in Scientology at all the different levels. And we really try to just hone in on the important stuff that we want you guys to know about that is really the important stuff, you know, not the minutiae. I get into all kinds of minutiae in answering these questions because it's kind of fun. But in the general course of talking to you guys about this or Leah's show or Going Clear documentary, I mean, they are just... You know, they're, they're just giving you a very simplified version of, of very complex events. So that all being said, let's go ahead and uh, dive into this. Okay, I'm not going to be able to answer all the questions you asked, but let's, let me give you an overview here. First off, let me clear up a little misconception. Um, every single Scientology organization is its own individual corporation. It's got its own little board of directors, although nobody cares about the board of directors part because they organize under Scientology's organization system, and the board of directors are just something that the WOGs ask for. Uh, you know, some Scientology talk. So, um, so as a separate corporation, they are fully responsible for their own income and their own allocations, where the money goes. But they are required by church policy and by the license agreements that they have with RTC that certain percentages of their income are going to get sent up the line to management, uh, management, and also to RTC directly. Um, and that these percentages are regulated by upper management, and those percentages are not optional. Uh, if they make $1,000 and they are supposed to send 45% of it up to all the different you know, streams that it's supposed to go up to at uh, management levels, then you know, 450, what was it, 450 bucks uh, is going just right off the top. It's just gone. And, that, and then the organization that week is left with the $550 remaining to figure out what to do to allocate that money, including the staff pay and any expenses that they're going to be making. Okay, so how does that all work? Um, well, they're pretty self-managing on that line, right? As long as they're sending the income up the line, that they're, the percentage that they're making, and it looks like things are fairly sensible in terms of what they're spending their money on and how they're allocating it, then they're not going to really hear too much about it from upper management. And certainly not from David Miscavige. He is nowhere on this line. Uh, David Miscavige could care less about the internal week-to-week allocations and financial planning of each organization. That's not his gig. There's over a hundred of these organizations and every single week they do a new financial planning. So it would be completely untenable for any single person to try to be the approval point for all these organizations. Instead, it's all done internally, except, except in certain cases, which I'll get to in a bit. The way the financial planning works is this. On Thursday night, Thursday at two o'clock, the week officially ends. That afternoon, the staff members are collecting up their weekly statistics, they have a staff meeting, and that evening they do a, um, there are two levels of meetings that happen. The first level is with the division heads, that's called the advisory committee. Those, or advisory council, uh, it's been both. The, those people are, are what constitute what's called financial planning as well. Every staff member in the organization, no matter what department or division or area they're in, if they need stuff purchased for their area, like in the course rooms, you might need some more clay or you might need paper. You can definitely need paper. They use the Scientology orgs go through a lot of paper. 
but pens, paper clips, I mean, all that stuff, right? The things that keep an organization going. Printing costs for promotional flyers, you know, or handouts for, you know, ticket costs, stuff like that. All of that stuff has to be uh, allocated to. And the way that they know to allocate the money to those different things is the staff members over those different areas will submit purchase orders. Um, the purchase order has attached to it a completed staff work, a piece of paper that explains what the situation is that they need this purchased, what the data is, including three quotes, like you said, they do have to get three quotes for anything that they are trying to purchase, and why it is that purchasing this item or items would be the solution to the problem that they're trying to solve. That's what gets attached to the purchase order. They collect up maybe 20 of these things from all over the organization every week. Um, so on Thursday night, when they do their financial planning, they look at how much they have to spend, right? Because now they've taken the percentages off that go up to management. They've taken off the staff pay, maybe. They've got their money here, right? And if they, whatever they've got left over. And if they don't have anything left over and they need to purchase some stuff, then the staff pay is going to get cut into. That's how that works, right? This is why staff don't get paid that much. It's because the staff pay becomes part of the rest of the allocation to purchase paper, toilet paper, stuff like that. So all those purchases get looked over and the, and the financial planning committee decides as a body which of those are going to get approved or disapproved, right? They put it all together in a package and they um, attach a cover sheet. It all gets put into a folder and it goes up to the next level, the executive committee. This is the senior three, four executives of the organization and they are the final approval point for where their money is going to be going. That's how that works, okay? The executive council is the, the final arbiter on that stuff. And if, the, um, and, the, and if, you know, they can kick it back and forth and do all the bureaucratic stuff, but that's basically how the lines operate there, okay? Um, okay, let's see here. Um, now, when does upper management have to approve stuff? Okay, well, if you're going to buy a new building... They're definitely going to be all over that approval process, and that is not just something that gets taken up at the weekly outbound financial planning uh, with some great big $10 million purchase order. Right? It doesn't work like that. That's a whole binder of a completed staff work, and that gets sent all the way up eventually to Miscavige. Absolutely no question about it. He is the final approval point on any building purchases. Um, also, major, major purchases would need um, or would sometimes require management approval, like if, you were, if the org was going to buy a new vehicle. Uh, I mean, it's not like they buy cars for the staff, right? That doesn't, have, that doesn't really happen very often. But they have those yellow vans, those volunteer minister vans that they drive around in. Those had to be purchased, right? I think management actually purchased it, and then they, they got a pretty good fleet deal uh, at the continental level, and then, they, and then they charged each of the orgs for the, for the cost uh, that they had gotten the reduced rate on. So sometimes that kind of thing will happen when it's major capital purchases type of thing. Uh, let's see. And yeah, I mean, okay. And then you asked about knowledge reports. Do knowledge reports get in the way of impeding the creativity of these guys and finding things and stuff? Well, it can. Uh, it can be dangerous to be on the finance lines of Scientology. Uh, I was in, I was on the RPF with a whole lot of people who were there because of 
financial crimes, quote unquote, or what they call financial irregularities or financial waste, right? That's a big thing. And uh, they really mind the P's and Q's and, you know, dot the I's and cross the T's when it comes to their accounting processes and where the money is being allocated to. It's very, very well accounted for at the lower levels. Uh, not that you can see anything going on at the upper levels when you're at the lower levels, but I'm just saying each organization is required to really keep its administration straight on this stuff, especially since, uh, you know, they got the tax exemption because they can be open to audit at any point. So does the KR stifle this? Yeah. If you get it, if you, you know, you might be very, very conservative in how you're going to go about looking at getting new vendors or trying to get better prices or trying to come up with a new project that might require some investment. That's going to definitely get a whole lot of scrutiny if you're coming up with some new ideas and stuff. But the much bigger problem that they tend to face is the is the percentages and paying those percentages and keeping management happy with you. That is the that's the biggest problem. Um, and that is kind of how all that works. I hope that gives you at least encapsulates a lot of what you were asking about, even if it doesn't address every single point you asked for. I, I hope I showed a little bit behind the curtain of the minutia of like, oh my God, this stuff is really boring. But that's how the Church of Scientology operates. And we don't really talk about that stuff so much because there's nothing really sexy about it. It's just the day-to-day -day of Scientology, just like any other company. And, uh, and that day-to-day -day exists, and, and those, those people are there doing that work. And that's otherwise, the, the doors wouldn't stay open and the lights wouldn't stay on, right? So that's kind of how all that works. Okay, I gave some pretty beefy answers this week. So we're going to skip the uh, flash answers, and we're just going to go with this for now. Um, I hope that, you know, you guys enjoyed what I had to say here this week and got something out of it. Please consider supporting this channel through Patreon. Uh, that is how I keep the lights on and everything going here, and it is very, very appreciated from you guys. Thanks a lot for coming around. Please leave any more questions, comments, or feedback in the comment section on this video here on YouTube or at my mncriticalthinking.com website. Talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye.